pray before we start. Father, Lord, we, we do pray that, that tonight will be such a blessing, especially for those who have been baptised. And Father, we pray that as we turn to your word, that you'll speak to us. And Father, I pray that, that each person here will just receive that personal little word that is just for them. Mm. And Lord, that everyone will be blessed and helped. Mm. <clears throat> Father, because we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Right, well it is really excellent tonight that uh, Tom and Bailey and Vivian are going to be baptised and it's lovely to see strange faces, uh, by strange I'm not using that word descriptively, uh, I'm using it uh, in that you haven't been here before and your faces are new to us. Um, I'm just going to read you a couple of verses, <clears throat> first of all in Romans 6, I'm just going to read verse 3, when Paul says this, do you not know that all of us who have been baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? And then in Matthew 16, verse 24 and 25, Jesus said, If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. <clears throat> now, to be baptised in water as a Christian is a many splendid thing, and uh, it represents more than one thing. But tonight, I want to home in on one of the things that it does represent. And it's the fact that I tell people, when they're going to get baptised, that the truth of the matter is, your baptism is your funeral. And uh, I remember <laughs> some time ago... This was out in the country, uh, a guy wanted to be baptised who hadn't, and uh, I knew a fellowship a few miles away who had a portable baptistry, it was a, a bolt together job, and this was really good, so I asked him if we could borrow it, and we sort of set it up in the garden, and when we put it together, the beautiful thing about it was it was shaped as a coffin. And that was absolutely dead right. You see, because Paul says that we are baptised into the death of Jesus. And the death of Jesus was a death to sin. And we're saying that we are now acknowledging that we are dead to the life that we lived before we knew Jesus. And also when Jesus taught about carrying your cross, taking up your cross and carrying it, there's a most extraordinary idea been abroad into the kingdom of God as to what he meant. And it's kind of the picture that people have is that a Christian kind of picks up their cross and they're forever wandering around, burdened down by whatever their cross is. You therefore find Christians are intensely miserable, the reason being because they've got a cross to carry. Now this is not what Jesus meant. What happened when Jesus took up his cross? I'll tell you. He carried it to the top of a hill. They nailed him upon it, and he died on it. Carrying the cross is representative of the fact that we are saying no to ourselves, that we're going to die to that old life, and that we live to a new life in the power of Jesus. And what I want to do tonight in bringing out this emphasis, this aspect of what being baptised signifies, sharing the death of Jesus, and I want to do it by bringing out three different characteristics of someone who is hanging on a cross like Jesus did, to die. 
And I'm going to show you how these things kind of relate to their present, to their past, and to their future. And we can understand what the Christian life really is. So what we're saying is we're taking a picture of a man hanging on a cross to find out what the Christian life is all about. Now, first of all, as far as a man on a cross is concerned, what's the situation in regards to his present moment? Well, I'll tell you. He can only face one direction. There is no mobility of your head when you're hanging on a cross being crucified. He can only face in one direction. Now, you'll remember that Jesus once said, let your eye be single. And what Jesus was meaning by that was that the Christian, above all people, is single-minded. He faces one direction and one direction only. Now, if you think what single-mindedness is, the Oxford Concise Dictionary defines it thus. A sincere, consistent devotion to one purpose. Now that is what our life is to be in the ever-present moment of time. A sincere, consistent devotion to what? To serving Jesus as our Lord. And you remember that Jesus based his evangelistic appeal when he was saying to people, look, you need to be saved. He was saying there are two roads. He says there's one that leads to absolute damnation. He says that is wide and that is easy. He says, but there's another one that leads to eternal life. And the distinctive thing about the road that leads to eternal life is that Jesus said it was narrow. And I'll tell you, when I became a Christian 17 years ago, I found that following Jesus, that getting on that road, that it was indeed very narrow. It required utter commitment and single-mindedness. But I'll tell you, having walked along that road now for 17 years, I have noticed, as maybe some of you have, that it doesn't get any wider. If anything, I think it gets a little bit narrower as you go along. So there is, without any doubt at all, a narrowness, a single-mindedness that we are called upon to show and live as Christians. Now, let me say immediately that some Christians are so narrow-minded that their ears touch. <laughs> that is not what I'm meaning. Obviously, in many things, precisely because we're Christians, we are going to be liberal and we are going to be tolerant. But in other things, we are going to be absolutely narrow. And one of the great tragedies about 20th century Christianity is that Christians today tend to be intolerant when they ought to be liberal, but are incredibly liberal when they ought to be narrow. For instance, the way that we often treat each other when we're struggling with sin can bring a terrible intolerance out amongst us. This should not be. We're as wide as the ocean when it comes to receiving and loving people struggling with sin. I have to struggle with sin. I don't want you to be, you know, disgusted and walk off and stop loving me. I want you to receive me as I am in Jesus, as indeed I want to receive you. Can you see there's a time when people are narrow, when they should be liberal. But oh how sad that in the church as well, things on which the Bible says there is no compromise, we manage to be as liberal as it's possible to be. Note the heresy, the false doctrine running 
through the Christian church in our country. It's a terrible mistake to be too tolerant when you ought to be narrow. We've got them the wrong way round. Now, primarily, what God is doing today, this is what relates to us. What is Jesus doing today? It's no use just reading the Bible and finding out doctrines here and there. They're all true. Of course, everything in the Scripture is true. But we always need to know what Jesus is doing now. What of his father's business is he about now that he's calling us to be involved in? And the thing that he's doing today, above all else, is he is calling his people back to himself. Today, Jesus is calling us away from our ideas of Christianity. He is calling us away from our idea of the church. And he is calling us back to the Bible's idea. Because there is one authority that we bow down to as Christians, and this is the authority of the Scripture. We do not bow to tradition. We do not bow to men. We do not bow to opinions. We bow to the Word of God as revealed to us in the Scripture. And today God is raising up men and women who will give out this prophetic word, who will say and declare in Jesus' name that the prophetic word that he wants to put out today is this. Jesus is saying, give me back my church. That is what Jesus is saying. He says, I want my church back because he wants to do it his way, and he wants to get it out of our hands, out of man's way, and to return to the truths and the teachings that he's given us in the scriptures. Now let me tell you, to be part of that today, you have got to be single-minded. It is no use being all over the place. It is no use being of a compromising disposition. There has got to be this out-and-out out obedience to what the Scripture says. And we've got to be single-minded for the simple reason that this full loyalty and allegiance to what Jesus has shown us in the Word of God gets called everything except what it actually is. This is a great problem. Many Christians, when they see other Christians being single-minded, they call it, in fact, something else. Firstly, they tend to call it arrogance. You see, the spirit of the age today, and this is a philosophical thing, which is, you know, I'm not going to go into today, but the philosophy that's in the world is relativistic philosophy. It denies that there are any absolutes at all. Therefore, there is one thing in the world today that is intellectually frowned upon universally, and it is dogmatism. In fact, modern man is dogmatic about only one thing. You mustn't be dogmatic. It is totally <laughs> unrespectable today to be dogmatic about everything. The reason being, if God is denied as he is today, then there is no basis to have any kind of absolutes whatsoever. But the spirit of the age today is that it is against any and all forms of dogmatism. Now, sadly, the church has become very tinged. The church always stands in danger of incorporating into itself and re reflecting the spirit of the age. And the spirit of the age changes. Today, it's anti-dogmatism. This is why churches, I mean, kind of, anything goes, really. The final issue that decides things are politics. 
How can we do this whilst pleasing the maximum number of people? Can you see that dogmatism is shied away from? Now, what we need today is much more biblical dogmatism. Now, I've qualified it because the last thing we want is dogmatism that has no authority. The only thing that has authority is the teaching of the Bible. Now, we need people who are willing to once more stand up and to be dogmatic about that which the Bible is dogmatic about. That which the Bible isn't about, then we're not going to be dogmatic about that. But we are called to be dogmatic about that which the Bible is clearly dogmatic about. We need dogmatic Christians. And it kind of kills me today because we sort of, you know, like we've got the so-called charismatic movement. And uh, it sort of strikes me we ought to rename it. We ought to call it the catmatic movement. Because rather than being dogmatic about anything at all, all it does is pussyfoot about. And we have got to be prepared to stand dogmatically with the Bible, where the Bible itself. People are going to say that we're arrogant. That is not their problem. Our problem, that is theirs. Arrogance is when someone moves outside and beyond of their authority. The Bible is the final authority. Each of us are authorised by God himself to stand dogmatically by what the Bible says. It isn't arrogant, but it does get up the nose of other Christians who are compromising. That's the problem. The other thing it gets called is troublemaking. Do you remember Elijah? Elijah, how the Lord brought a drought upon Israel because Israel was serving Baal. They were kind of half-serving the Lord, and they were half-serving Baal. They were kind of in between. And, I mean, sort of Christians today, many of them, they're half-serving Jesus, and they're half-serving churches and traditions and the spirit of the age and all this sort of stuff. So a drought came to the people of Israel, and that was serious in those days. Elijah comes on the scene, and he declares it prophetically. He says there's not going to be any water, no rain, until we've got our act together and we have repented. And he goes straight to Ahab, who was the king. And there's no, no, no mucking about here. You know, straight to the king in the name of the Lord, you see. The immediate response he got is that Ahab said, Is it you, you trouble of Israel? Mm. Now, the truth of the matter is, okay, trouble was being caused. But what really caused the trouble is that God's people were being disobedient. It was simply the fact that Elijah was being used to challenge and expose that disobedience for what it was. So therefore be prepared to be called troublemakers. We're not, but be prepared to call it. I mean, it's sort of like one of the things that we need to die, and this is what Elijah did. We need troublers who will trouble the church of Jesus Christ, because we sit too snug in our boat. Jesus, Jesus actually wants us to get out there walking on the water with him. He wants us in victory. And we remain in the nice snug boat of our traditional Christianity, you see. Well, Jesus wants us out on the water, but that's a little bit hairy for us. We're quite happy in the boat. Now, shall I tell you how he encourages his people to get out there walking on the water with him? It's quite simply by this. In come the prophets, and do you know what they do? They jump in the boat, and they rock it so much 
until everyone in the boat reckons it's safer out there than it is in the boat. Can you see? God knows how to hand his people out a good old dose of old-fashioned trouble in order to bring us back to being obedient to him. So it gets called troublemaking. It gets called all manner of things. But nevertheless, we are called to be single-minded, to be looking straight ahead, looking at Jesus only and being in full obedience to him. That is our stance. That is what a man on a cross is doing. He is looking straight ahead. He has no choice in the matter. Neither should we. Now then, what about his past? What is the truth of the past of a man hanging on the, tr- on the cross? It's this. He doesn't look back. He can't. He can only look forward. He can't look back. What's gone before is no more his concern. And Jesus said, no one who puts his hand to the plough and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Don't look back. Now, obviously, there are those times when it is quite right to kind of get retrospective, looking back on how God has blessed us and led us through the years. Of course, there's a positive way. But that isn't what Jesus means here. When he says don't look back, he's talking about the times that you do look back and it's Satan who's giving you the guided tour. Now this can really plague Christians. Satan is very good at guided tours. He'd do very well with Horizons and and these tour tour people because he knows so much. And if we look back over our lives in the wrong way, then Satan knows exactly what to show us. And there are three things that he does, and they're powerful things, and he uses them against us. And we've got to learn not to look back in this respect. See, one of the things he shows you is all your past sins. Satan is a great keeper of records. Uh, There are people, my brother in fact is one, who are obsessed with keeping lists. My brother has a, you know, he's a film buff. He has a list of every film he has ever seen. And, and, and it's a kind of a recognised, you know, kind of, you know, sort of some people are eccentric in that way. They are keepers of lists. And you can actually buy books of lists because there are so many people who are like it, you see. Now, Satan is a great keeper of lists. And his favourite is our sins. Every time we sin and get out of fellowship with the Lord, that occasion goes down on Satan's list. And he's always very quick to hold it any time that we might be looking for it. Now, what we've got to realise is this in regards to our past. That sins confessed are forgiven by God. But it's more than that. You see, because sins confessed are forgotten by God. In the Old Testament, God said, Your sins I will remember No more. Now, if God has forgotten them, if God has genuinely wiped the slate clean, as he does every time we confess, when we sin and get out of fellowship with God, 1 John 1, 9, confess your sins, and he is faithful and just to forgive. There is no record of that sin. It is gone. There are no records of our sins in heaven. The slate is clean. And yet Satan loves to drag them all up all the time so he can have us living under a haze of condemnation 
because we have been so sinful in the past. And the Bible says, Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for them which are in Christ Jesus. Now there's something else here as well. I am thrilled to know that my past sins are gone. I mean, that is just that God hasn't got a record of it. God is never going to drag them up. Now, what on earth, therefore, am I doing, I have to ask myself, when I am tempted to do that to other people? We dare not do it to each other either. Can you see? Sin forgiven is dead. It's gone. It's absolutely buried. Satan is the only one for whom they are a going concern. Forget them. Don't dig up dead corpses. They stink. And many, many Christians are walking around with the dust of death settled upon them because they're all the time condemning themselves and mourning because of their past sins. Let me tell you, there's no record of them in heaven. Why on earth should we go around remembering them as well? And remember too that our consciences are also fallen. When Adam and Eve fell, when sin came into the human experience, every aspect of our lives is tinged with sin. This is what the theologians mean by the term total depravity. It doesn't mean that, uh, that, that one is totally depraved 100%. No, it means that every aspect of life is tainted and twisted by sin. And that is the same for our consciences as well. And that whereas the Lord will certainly use our consciences to show us if there's a sin that's unconfessed, unconfessed that we need to put right, it is also true that Satan will use our consciences to all the time be making us feel guilty about things we've confessed. If you are carrying guilt about something that you have confessed to the Lord, that guilt is satanic. It is not from the Lord. Because if the Holy Spirit makes you feel guilty, it's only so that you confess. The moment you confess, the Holy Spirit takes the guilt away and he gives you peace. Any guilt that remains after is from the devil. Stand against him, kick him out. And if you find that you're not able to do that on your own, well, go to a friend who you trust and they'll pray for you. Can you see, our sins are gone and we've got to start living like it as well. Now, the second thing that Satan will show you when you look back in this wrong way is that he will show you Egypt when you're at the Red Sea. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, I mean this. When God used Moses to bring Israel out from the bondage of Egypt and they were heading towards the promised land, they came out of Egypt, but what was in their way was the Red Sea and they couldn't get across. And Pharaoh's army was coming up behind them to kill them. Now, what happened was they were dependent upon a miracle from God in order to go over into the land of promise, the land that God has said he was going to give them. Now, what happened was that a bit of a panic happened. Pharaoh's army is coming to kill them. There's a sea in the way, so a little bit of panic. Now, what Moses did, he said to the people, stand firm, stand firm. All right, that was what he said. Very cautious, very sensible. Absolutely wrong, as we're going to see in a minute, but it sounded good, it got him by. Now, the people, the Israelites in general, they said, let's go back. They lost their bottle, all right. They thought, look, I mean, Egypt wasn't that bad. Why have you brought us out here to die in the wilderness? Let's go back into Israel. At least we were alive there. Here, we're going to get killed. But God said, go forward. 
That's what God said. He said, you need a miracle? Right, go get it. That's what the law said. Now, the thing is, the people in that instance, they were looking back. They wanted to take the easy way out. The way that God was leading them seemed just a little bit too hairy. Does God come very close to the edge in your life? He, I mean, I spend my Christian life hanging over a precipice. Because that's what faith is all about, can you see? And yet there's always that temptation, the whispering voice, go back, cut and run, compromise. Now here is the point. When the people said that, they were actually being deceived by Satan himself. Think about it. They were saying, this is too hard, let's go back to Egypt, it was easier. Now think, what would have happened if they'd done that? I'll tell you, they would have been massacred by Pharaoh and his army who were chasing up to them and were nearly catching up with them. Can you see? It was a ridiculous thing that they would have done. They would have all been massacred to a man, you see. And so the point is, in a situation like that, as you're following the Lord, if, if, if we look back, if we say, oh, it was easier then and kind of backtrack all the time, we really aren't going to get anywhere at all. And in fact, what's going to happen is this. Not only are you going to meet Satan head on, who's chasing you at your rear, but you're then going to have the Holy Spirit chasing you up from the other end, convicting you because you're not being faithful to God because now you're being disobedient and compromising. Can you see, going back is really not worth it in any way at all. You see, so any time when the going is getting really tough in following the Lord's will, remember any thought of going back, any thought of compromising, in actual fact that is a lie that it's going to be better and that will turn out to be much, much harder than if you just kept going and being faithful to God. What's, what's that advert on TV, you know, when, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. Can you see, now that's the motto for the Christian. When the going gets tough, don't run back, Satan will have you. You know, it won't be worth it. He can't hurt you. But he'll make life unpleasant. Keep going. And think as well of all the marvellous miracles that we would miss if every time we needed one, we ran. Can you see, if the children of Israel had gone back into Egypt, not only would they have all been killed which wouldn't have been very nice, but one of the greatest miracles in the Old Testament would have never happened, because there'd have been no one left who needed it, therefore God wouldn't have actually worked it. So then, there's another thing. Satan will show you Egypt when you're standing at the Red Sea, because standing at the Red Sea, oh, it's a little bit dodgy, but then faith is. Faith, you've got to be willing to take risks. And then a third thing that, Pete, that Satan will show you is this. He will show you the massive an entire failure so far of your Christian life. Now, if you look back on a successful Christian life, this bit isn't for you. You would need a Bible study on repenting of self-righteousness and self-deception. <laughs> I look back on failure, okay? Now, so therefore, Satan will show you that, you know, your discipleship, whether you've only been a Christian a week or whether you've been a Christian for 20 years, Satan will show you the failure of that discipleship and he will get you depressed about it. Now, the only reason that happens is because we're failing to realise the truth 
about our past. You see, the thing is, that failure you look back on, and that failure that I look back on, even I'm not now talking about you know our, our dark lives before we got saved. They're bad enough, but I'm talking about since I got you know saved. I mean, I, I meet these Christians, and it's like they give their testimonies at the meetings. And remember, the only Christians who get asked to give their testimonies are the dramatic ones. Because who wants to hear a boring testimony? You see, so the, 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 the whole thing about writing testimony books and big meetings and brother so-and-so is going to give his testimony. Remember, the whole thing is fundamentally, the, the, there's, if you're not careful, there's a, a core of deception already in it, you see. And I've heard so many, you know, sort of, uh, when guys get up and women get up and they talk about how dreadful, how dreadful their life was before they got saved. But now, the last year since I've been following Jesus, it's all been, oh, wow, I haven't stopped praising the Lord. And you see, what gets me is that their former life, before they got converted, was better mine since I did get converted. And I find that so depressing, you see. So, therefore, can you see, we've got to understand, we've got to understand our past failure in order to understand it. Now, the failure is real, yes, but that failure is redeemable. Now, what do I mean by this? We've got to realise that in actual fact, there are many things in the Christian life that God uses to enable us to grow. Uh, again, the theologians call them means of grace. You know, like, you know, I mean, they will say getting baptised is a means of grace. In that sense, they're quite right. Reading the Bible, having fellowship together, praying, all these things are a means of grace. And there are hundreds of others, absolutely super duper. But one of the things that I have never seen listed in any theological book as a means of grace, and it's been one of the ones which has helped me more than anything, is that God uses our failure in order to enable us to grow. Now, let me think for one moment. All that failure in your Christian life, if Satan can get you looking at it and get you depressed, then that failure is going to make your present life a misery, all right? Because you'll end up condemned again, you know, the old sin thing. But if you start to learn to look back on it from a scriptural viewpoint, understanding what the Bible says about it, then in actual fact, not only will your past failure not depress you, it will be a thorough encouragement to you and it will bless you. What on earth do I mean by this? Think of Peter. Now, I like Peter in the Bible. And the reason I like Peter is because he blew it so thoroughly. I love a man who blows it like Peter did, because that's how I do it. So I can identify with Peter. Now, think about it. You remember that Peter, when he realised that Jesus' life was in danger, Peter said, Lord, I will die for you. Now, Peter meant it. With everything in him, he meant it. But you see, the thing is that even though he meant it... Do you remember in Romans 7, Paul speaks about the experience he had after he was a Christian? He says, in my heart, I want what's right. But all I do is, is, is what's wrong. And Paul reported that experience after he became a Christian. Now, the thing was that Peter had yet to realise that whereas his desires were God-given and absolutely right, he still didn't have what it really took in order to see that through. So when he said, Lord, I want to die for you, there was Peter saying, Lord, I want my life to be, I want to follow you 100%. Mm. But Peter was deceiving himself, absolutely deceiving himself. You see, because he didn't have what it took, because he was still trusting in himself. 
So what Jesus said, he says, right, okay. And in response to that, Jesus said, in actual fact, Satan has decided to sift you like wheat. Now, what does that mean? The idea of sifting, it's kind of a harvesting thing, that you get all the harvest, you get the wheat and the chaff, and you sort of beat it about with what's called a threshing sledge. And that separates all the muck and leaves the good stuff, you see. Now, Jesus said, Peter, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat. He said, Peter, Satan is going to give you a good thrashing. Now, let me tell you, when, when God wants to sanctify us, he uses absolutely everything going, including Satan. This makes Satan mad, you see. Because Satan tries to get you to backslide and tempt you and stuff like that, you see. And even when you fall flat on your face afterwards, Satan can see it's, it's made you grow as a Christian. Satan hates this. But what happens is, Satan then arranges the situation so that Peter, after Jesus had been taken off to the mock trial, that Peter actually was then given a chance to, to do what he said he would. Given a chance to die for Jesus. And three times people came up and said, you were with Jesus. And Peter denied it with oaths and cursings. Not a pretty sight. Peter was a fisherman. He knew how to curse. He knew how to swear. You know, I mean, sort of like, you know, East End bar bartenders had nothing on Peter. It wasn't a pretty sight. Now then, therefore, Peter gets the opportunity to do what he wants. And do you know what happens? He totally fails. This man who wanted to lay down his life for Jesus is shown to be an utter, utter coward. Now, immediately after the third time that, that Peter denied Jesus, he saw Jesus going across the courtyard and their eyes met. Peter then went out and the Bible says that he wept bitterly. Now, when people marvel at Peter when he got baptised in the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, you think, wow, what a powerful man he was. It wasn't that he was filled with the Spirit that primarily did that to him. It was the fact that his failure and his despair in himself had emptied him of his self-effort. That was what made it. Can you see? Peter's failure became the means whereby he was broken, realising he could do nothing for Jesus at all, and therefore Peter began to let Jesus do things through him instead. It's our failure that gets us out of the way so that Jesus can live through us, assuming that we respond to that failure in the correct way. Satan wants you to look back, and he wants you to get depressed about that failure. God wants you to look back, and he wants you to see your failure, and to realise that all the time he's saying, um, when are you going to realise that you can't do it? Look at that, look at that, look what happened there. He's not doing it to condemn you. He's just saying, when am I going to get through to you? And he'll take as long as it takes. There's no great hurry. But can you see it's through our failure that we eventually seem to realise that the day that we were converted, God didn't actually come into the possession of such a prize after all. I mean, the night I was converted, I mean, it was genuine, but lucky God is really what I was thinking. <laughs> what, what I wasn't going to do for Jesus. Oh dear, oh dear. But you see, you have to be broken of that. But it's failure, our past failure that does it. So don't be depressed when you look back. It's Satan who's making you depressed. Rejoice in that very failure. Romans 8.28 In everything God works for good with those who love him and are called according to his purpose. In everything God works together. Now, shall I tell you what that everything includes? 
It includes your failure and it includes the most rotten, low, disgusting thing that you have done since you got saved. That thing is going to bless you, assuming that it's confessed and repented of. This is beautiful. Nothing is wasted in God's economy. Even our past failure is used in order to bless us. Now what this means is that our past is safe. It's safe. For years as a Christian I was haunted by my past. There was only one reason why my past never managed to catch up with me. And it was the speed at which I was running away from it. (laughs) Now, can you see? That's all wrong. We don't need to be frightened of the past. It's dealt with by Jesus. And we can know that as assuming that we are committed to the Lord in ongoing confession and repentance in the present moment of time, then we can be utterly assured that the past is absolutely taken care of and likewise the future as well. Just think for a moment of the significance of the time when Jesus met the man who was by the pool of Bethsaida. Do you remember that guy? He was sort of, you know, he'd been ill for 48 years or 38 years, I think. And, and he'd just been a beggar. And Jesus went up to him and he said, do you want to get well? You know, and Jesus healed him. But you see, the thing is that when Jesus did, he said to him, he said, take up your bed and walk. Now, why is it that Jesus did that? Well, I'll tell you, it was important. This guy, all his life, had been a beggar. He was paralysed. He couldn't move. Every morning of his life, he was carried out from the hovel where he was sleeping. He was planted by this pool, and there he could beg and hope that people gave him money. And every night, someone took him back to his hovel. That was his life, and had been for 38 years. He couldn't care for himself. He was paralysed. He couldn't wash. He couldn't change his clothes. What do you think that mat was like? I'll tell you, it was putrid. It was infested. It was horrible. He was in utter squalor. And that bed that he was lying on represented the dirtiness, the horror of those past 38 years that had contaminated him all that time. Now, the reason why Jesus said, pick up your bed and walk, is that Jesus was saying, I'm going to heal you now. And he says, but I want you to pick your bed up for this reason. You see, I want you to know that it's safe for you to pick that bed up. I want you to know that that bed can't reinfect you again. I've healed you. I want you to know it's quite safe. And all I want you to do is to get up. I want you to pick that bed up, just hold it. Just for a little while, just hold it. No, it's quite safe. No, it can never hurt you again because I've healed you. And then you can go home and you can throw it away. Now that is what Jesus is saying to his people about our past. He wants us to pick it up. He doesn't want us to run away from it. He wants us to face it. He wants us to pick it up and to see that it is quite, quite harmless That it cannot hurt you because it's covered by the blood of Jesus and it has been made totally ineffective because Jesus has forgiven our past and because we are new creations in Christ. Everything has become new. And the Lord wants us to do that. Our past will never catch up with us. It's toothless. The Lord has taken the power out of it. We are quite safe. Do you remember Lot's wife? 
when God said that I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot and his family were believers and they were delivered out of it. But when they came out of the city, before the fire and brimstone came down, the Lord said to them, don't look back. Just don't look back. Forget what's gone before. This is a new chapter. Don't look back. And Lot's wife did look back and she turned into a pillar of salt. There are Christians today who are about as dynamic and useful as pillars of salt. I mean, they are veritable walking containers of Saxo. And the reason is because they're in bondage to the past. Rather than getting on and enjoying a new life where we are washed clean, where we are absolutely right with God because of what Jesus has done. And then the third thing about a man on a cross is that in regards to his future, he has no further plans of his own. He's dying. Dying people don't make plans. And you remember that Paul says, it's no longer I who live, it's Christ who lives through me. So again, as Christians, sorry about this, you don't have a future anymore. Not that it's yours to decide. I don't. Corrie ten Boom said a lovely thing in one of her books. When she first went into, you know, like she was Travelling the world, speaking and teaching. And what she used to do is she used to work out her itinerary for a year in advance. And then she kind of asked the Lord to sign it. She'd say, Lord, I give this itinerary to you, bless it, you see. Well, after a few years, the Lord eventually got through to her. And what she did after that is that when it came to, you know, working out the itinerary, she'd get a sheet of paper she used to write her signature at the bottom and say, Lord, fill this in. <laughs> That's the right way round. Now, do you remember when Moses met with God out of the burning bush after him being laid aside in the wilderness, you know, to kind of be broken? Because that's why he was there, to grow up as a Christian. And God spoke to him. And the first thing that the Lord said is, take the shoes from off your feet because the place you're standing is... Hello, ground. And again, do you remember, before the, the taking of Jericho, Joshua met the man with the drawn sword? That was Jesus in his pre-existence. And he said, take the shoes from off your feet. This is hallowed ground. Now, why is it that in God's presence we are, as it were, to take our, the shoes off, off of our feet? I'll tell you. Shoes are for going places in. And you and I ain't going anywhere anymore. We are meant to be Jesus' shoes. He is supposed to put his feet, as it were, in us and move us. I would be very impressed if my shoes decided to go walkies tonight. <laughs> if they were sort of like walking all round the place, you know, all round the room with me sitting here. Because the idea of my shoes is that they go where I go when I put my feet in them. Now we are to be Jesus' shoes. The future is for him to decide. It's not for us anymore. We have no right to plan our lives anymore because we have signed them over to Jesus. Baptism, it's attending your own funeral. People who are dying do not have any further plans of their own. Now, you see, the thing is, there's two things here. One good and one a mm, bit difficult to live with. You see... Firstly, it means that my entire future, everything I do, is God's prerogative to decide. And that, that's a rub. Would you not agree? 
there's a rub to that. It's not easy. And I've tended to find that what happened was that 17 years ago, I came to Jesus, I gave my life to him. All right? For the last 17 years, what's been happening, I now know, is that I gave my life to Jesus quite freely, of my own free will, in a tightly clenched fist. The last 17 years has been the Lord prying my hand open to get to me. Can you see? Now, it's a rub. It's not our prerogative to organise our lives now. It's Jesus's. But there's something else as well. That means that my life is also his responsibility. And I think that is a massive relief. I'm so pleased that it's not my responsibility. That's the perk. I love that. Knowing that Jesus is responsible for my life is just terrific. Remember what Paul says in, in, in the scripture. He says, you are not your own you are bought with a price. Full, unconditional surrender to Jesus. We have no further plans of our own. Where we live, the job we do, who we marry, everything is decided by the Lord. Now, let me hasten to add, this is decided by the Lord, not other Christians. I'm not talking about these guys, oh, I have God's word for you, brother. You know, <laughs> be my sheep, I'm a shepherd. I mean, I'm, I'm not talking about these guys. I'm not talking about submission to men. No man has the right. They can advise. No man has the right to tell you where to live, who to marry, anything like that at all. But what I'm saying is Jesus does. And he can get these things through to us. And so, therefore, everything, our futures, laid out completely to Jesus. And the work of the Holy Spirit. We've seen the baptism, it's your funeral. We've seen that one of the things it represents is dying to the old life. It's dying to the old you. What I call the sin version you. It's dying to that. It's hanging on the cross and dying. And yet it's also being raised to a new life in Jesus where it's Jesus who lives in our place. And that is what I call the Jesus version me. So that what happened, the night I got saved, the old sin version, BJ, took a dive. God, God dealt with him. I mean, he's dead, but he won't lie down. Do you have that problem? But nevertheless, God stuck a, struck a death blow to the old sin version, BJ. And an entire new creation, a Jesus version, me, came into being. And the Christian life is the Holy Spirit breaking us. So that what's inside the life of Jesus can come through. It's laying our lives aside, the continuous dying to self, so that Jesus can come through and live in our place. And that is why tonight, Tom is going to be baptised. Bailey and Vivian are going to be baptised. This that I've said is what we, as a fellowship, commit them to, as Christians. The joy of this it is their right to be baptised, to declare that they are followers of Jesus. And this is why tonight it's our privilege to be the ones through whom they are...